And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. One of the most difficult things in life is to keep up with all the garbage that constantly emanates from the Vatican II sect. But uh, that's what we're here for. We keep track of it all so you don't have to. Thank you for tuning in. This is the 22nd episode of Tratcast, the Sedevacanus podcast that even non-Sedevacanus listen to, even if they don't have the guts to admit it. All right, let's start with a few quick and light things to kind of get everybody into a good mood here, and we can leave the deeper, heavier stuff for later once you're warmed up a bit. On April 20th, the Novos Ordo news website Crux published a story with the hilarious headline, Humanity 2.0, Vatican hosts experts to discuss tenderness. Really, you just wonder what journalists are thinking when they put up stuff like that. This particular article was uh, written by Cindy Wooden, and uh, the opening paragraph reads like this, quote, Close to 100 financiers, philanthropists, artists, tech experts, physicians, politicians, and religious leaders spent more than an hour in a Vatican meeting room talking about tenderness, unquote. And you, you really have to see it to believe it. Um, we've got it linked in the show notes uh, for you, tradcast.org, simply look for Tradcast 22 and you will you can click on that link and then you'll find all the notes for the show. So for those who want to read the rest of the article, hey, go for it. Uh, just don't say you weren't warned. Okay. Another headline that caught my eye recently was put out by the uh, National Non-Catholic Register. And this is what it says. Author. Pope Francis is a mystic trying to solve the left-right dichotomy in the church. <laughs> oh, man, I could have fooled me, you know, seriously. Um, the more desperate these people become, the more absurd the claims they make. But I think there could be a strategy behind it. See, sometimes the best way to sell a ridiculous proposition is to make it so ridiculous, so over-the-top, that it becomes credible again. Because I guess everyone instinctively thinks that it is so harebrained that everyone would immediately reject it, so therefore it must be plausible. 
I think that's the the unconscious thought process behind it. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's a favorite tactic of communists. Uh, the author in question here, by the way, is Massimo, Massimo Borghese, and uh, he makes his claim about the mystic Francis, who, quote, conceives his mission as initiating processes that the spirit will bring to a solution, unquote. Oh, no doubt they'll come to a solution, all right, but uh, I don't think it's going to be a pretty one. Borghese's book about Francis, by the way, is called Jorge Mario Bergoglio, an Intellectual Biography. Now, honestly, to dignify the claptrap that incessantly spews forth from the Bergoglian mouth as intellectual is an insult to the human intellect. This man promotes a toxic mix of sappy greeting card spirituality, Jewish existentialism, Freemasonic naturalism, Talmudic psychology, and a touch of Catholicism on top just enough to make the masses think his doctrine has something to do with the Catholic Church. But hey, we're also willing to give credit where credit is due. And just the other day, Francis said something that was actually correct. Yeah, he said something that we must agree with. It doesn't happen too often, but every now and then, he just can't help himself and blurts out something that is the absolute truth. On June 22nd, after visiting the Ecumenist World Council of Churches in Geneva, Switzerland, he gave his usual in-flight entertainment press conference, and he said this, quote, there can be no ecumenism with proselytism. We need to choose either you are of an ecumenical spirit or you are a proselyte. Correct. That is exactly right. You can either practice converting people to Catholicism or you can practice ecumenism, but both is impossible to do because the two are mutually exclusive. What do you know? Francis is just like a broken clock. He's right on rare occasion, and then only by accident. Next, uh, can you believe it? It's already been over three years since the arrival of Laudato Si. That's the incredibly edifying encyclical Francis wrote about protecting the environment. Yeah, and so, of course, the Vatican is commemorating this significant anniversary with a special international conference taking place on July 5th and 6th entitled Saving the Common Home and the Future of Life on Earth. By contrast, back in 2007, when it was the 100th anniversary of the big anti-modernist encyclical Pascendi Dominici Gregis of Pope St. Pius X, the Vatican under Benedict XVI commemorated that with absolutely nothing. Well, priorities, you know. Save the earth or save souls. Okay, the next two stories we can lump together under the rubric False Principles Have Consequences. A controversy has erupted in the Society of St. Pius X's United States District regarding the question of whether Ascension Day 
is a holy day of obligation, meaning mass attendance binds under pain of mortal sin. You see, the difficulty for the Lefebvreites is this. They recognize the country's bogus ordo bishops as legitimate Catholic bishops who possess ecclesiastical jurisdiction. And these bogus ordo bishops have decided that Ascension Day is not a holy day of obligation except in the states of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, and Nebraska. So the question is, what's the SSPX going to do? The traditional thing to do is to observe Ascension Day as a holy day of obligation, and I don't recall the SSPX in former times really caring about uh, what the modernist Novus Ordo bishops had to say about it. But then, if they are the legitimate Catholic bishops, then they certainly have every right to determine what days are holy days of obligation and what days aren't. So, the SSPX is in a bit of a difficult spot here because they have to do a balancing act between recognizing the supposed authority of the Novus Ordo bishops on the one hand, but also not compromising tradition on the other. And uh, this is now causing bewilderment among their people, as can be seen in a discussion forum thread on the topic that we're linking in the show notes. And uh, this is one of the problems you end up with if you're trying to be Catholic in a non-Catholic church. It's what you get when you acknowledge non-Catholics as legitimate Catholic authorities. Of course, the general idea is, well, we'll submit to the Novus Ordo hierarchy in all things, except when they legislate something that's harmful. Okay, but the problem then obviously becomes that you need to have some kind of objective way to determine what is and isn't harmful, contrary to the determination of the supposedly legitimate ecclesiastical authority. And that's where you run into absurdity. See, God promised that the church would never universally teach or legislate evil. Not that the church would do so, but then the splinter group of your choosing would infallibly remain steadfast and oppose all the evil from the church. Okay, that's just crazy. So, who decides what is harmful? Is removing Ascension Day as a holy day of obligation harmful? Well, that's already where people disagree. But hey, maybe not Ascension Thursday. But then what about the Immaculate Conception? Or Christmas? How far can it go until it becomes harmful? Or what about the so-called luminous mysteries that John Paul II added to the Holy Rosary in 2002? I mean, who in the SSPX praised those? And yet, if you think about it, they're not harmful or sinful to pray. I mean, they're all biblical events. The luminous mysteries are Christ's baptism in the Jordan, the wedding at Cana, the proclamation of the kingdom of God, the transfiguration, and the institution of the Holy Eucharist. Now, is anyone in the Society of St. Pius X really going to argue that those are sinful or harmful mysteries to meditate on? Of course not. And yet, why have they not included them in their rosaries? See, once you reject submission to lawful ecclesiastical authority, it's over. Now, of course, I'm not saying that uh, anyone should submit to the Novus Ordo hierarchy. No, 
I'm saying that if you seek to hold fast to traditional Catholicism, then the only way you can refuse submission to the Novus Ordo hierarchy, as you must, is if you hold that they are not the legitimate Catholic hierarchy. Anything else does violence to Catholic teaching, the very teaching that traditional Catholics are bound to uphold. And what is so difficult about recognizing that the Novus Ordo hierarchy is not Catholic? And they, they didn't just abolish Ascension Thursday, they've abolished the whole Catholic religion, for goodness sake. You know, a participant in the combox of our blog made a great point the other day. This was in a thread about the 30th anniversary of the Episcopal consecrations of Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre on June 30th, 1988. A few days before that, the prefect of the Congregation for Bishops, Cardinal Bernard Ganton, had sent Archbishop Lefebvre a canonical warning that he would automatically incur the penalty of excommunication if he went ahead with the unauthorized consecration of bishops. Lefebvre and his defenders, of course, ignored it, essentially claiming that this was invalid and that the penalty would not, in fact, be incurred. And yet, are these not the very same people who argue today that before Francis could be considered a public heretic, he would have to show himself pertinacious by ignoring or refusing a canonical warning issued by the cardinals? Isn't it funny how that works? If Francis gets a canonical warning from his underlings, mind you, if he gets a canonical warning and ignores it, he's toast. He's to be condemned, he's lost his office, and that's proof positive right there. And yet, when a canonical warning is issued against the Society of St. Pius X, from the very authority that they recognize as legitimate, then it can be ignored and resisted with impunity. Oh, this is just rich. It goes to show that at the end of the day, the Society of St. Pius X only adheres to one principle, and that is the SSPX is the final authority. It is judged by no one, and nobody can appeal from its judgment. And now for our second story under the category of false principles have consequences. The parishioners of the traditional Latin mass parish of St. John Canius in Chicago are outraged because even though their pastor, the Reverend Frank Phillips, who had been temporarily removed due to allegations of misconduct, has been found innocent... Of all charges, he will not be returning to the parish, and his faculties for priestly ministry will remain withdrawn. How's that possible? Easy. His boss calls the shots, and his boss is Cardinal Blaise Supich, the ultra-modernist dirtbag. Supich is an arch-enemy of anything that remotely resembles Catholicism, especially the traditional Latin Mass. So, it's not surprising that he would do whatever he can to hurt this indult parish, and I wouldn't be surprised if he closes it altogether at some point or does something to make the parish insufferable for everyone. And this shows the absurd predicament that the whole indult movement, the movement to have the traditional Latin Mass, but under the auspices of the Novus Ordo hierarchy, is really in. Like the SSPX, they too are trying to be Catholic in a non-Catholic church, and now they're suffering 
because they're being humiliated by a supermodernist false hierarch appointed by Francis, who in reality has nothing to do with the Catholic Church. Well, that's what you get when you acknowledge non-Catholics as Catholic authorities. That's what you get when you're seeking permission to be Catholic from non-Catholics. Yes, it may work for a while, for as long as they don't interfere too badly and you can pretty much do your own thing. But the principle is flawed and therefore you're going to run into trouble before long. If you're content to accept non-Catholic wolves as your legitimate Catholic shepherds, then don't complain when the wolves are starting to do what wolves do, eat the sheep. So here too we see that false principles have consequences. Submit to a modernist and you will eventually get modernism. All right, our next story is uh, just over a year old, but it really doesn't matter because it's no less relevant today. In fact, even more so. It could be entitled Arsonists Warn of Conflagration or Modernists Warn Against Modernism or Offering the Cause of the Disease as the Cure. A Novos Ordo priest by the name of Linus Clovis spoke at the Rome Life Forum in the Eternal City on May 18th, 2017. His talk was entitled, The Anti-Church Has Arrived. So far, so good. We can agree. The problem is he presents Paul VI and John Paul II as having tried to fight the anti-church when the truth is, of course, that they are two of the individuals most responsible for its emergence and continued existence. Ooh, so Paul VI lamented that the smoke of Satan had entered the church. Yes, he said that indeed on June 29th, 1972, and he was probably secretly boasting. I mean, John XXIII lit the fire and Paul VI made sure that it was going to burn everything down. And then he disingenuously complained about the smoke of Satan. Ironically, Father Clovis says that, quote, It is necessary that we face squarely the reality of our situation. That is, since ignorance is a cause of fear, we must both admit that there is a problem and identify the nature of the problem. Thank God, this work has already been done for us by St. Pius X, who unmasked modernism, the enemy within, by St. John Paul, who alerted us to the anti-church, the form of the enemy within, and by Pope Paul VI, who on the 60th anniversary of the miracle of the sun described the extent of the success of the enemy within." Unquote. Folks, this willing suspension of disbelief has got to stop, especially today, over 50 years after Vatican II, when everything is so clear. If you're looking to figure out this horrible situation we're in with the anti-church in Rome, then the first thing you need to do is stop with the silly illusions. The Novus Ordo anti-church in Rome was imposed from the top. John XXIII prepared the way and laid the foundations. Paul VI formally instituted and codified the new church, gave it its false sacraments, its ugly art and architecture, and all that. 
As for John Paul I, his uh, 33-day stint in the Vatican is completely irrelevant. And John Paul II made the new church attractive to the masses. He filled it with charisma. He gave it personality and a conservative veneer and boldly led it into so many foul and filthy errors, especially the, the whole interreligious peace prayer blasphemies, the theology of the body, the evil new code of canon law, the incredibly offensive directory for the application of principles and norms on ecumenism, the whole idolatry of man and the worship of the youth, the introduction of altar girls, uh, then this whole idea of the Pope as pop star, uh, the endless traveling around the globe and kissing the soil upon arrival, the veneration of false religions, and so on and so forth. But Clovis is right on one thing. John Paul II did alert us to the existence of the anti-church. In 1977, as Cardinal Karl Wojtyla, he wrote in his book, Sign of Contradiction, quote, The Church succeeded during the Second Vatican Council in redefining her own nature, unquote. Folks, if you're looking for a new church, an anti-church, look no further than the Church of the Second Vatican Council. Wojtyla himself publicly stated that it was a church of a different nature. That means it's a new church, a different church, not the church founded by Jesus Christ, and therefore not the religion of Jesus Christ. Necessarily, then, it is a religion of the devil. And yes, you can look up that quote from Wojtyla's book for yourself. We have a scanned image of the page from which it's taken, so just look for that in the show notes for this episode. It's found on page 17 of the 1979 edition published by Seabury Press, and the book again is called Sign of Contradiction. Here is more from the Reverend Clovis, quote, It is self-evident that the Catholic Church and the anti-church currently coexist in the same sacramental, liturgical, and juridical space, unquote. Isn't that interesting? Unfortunately, the author here does not explain how one would know whether one is participating in the unholy rites of the anti-church or in the divine worship of the true church. It all coexists somehow in the same space. In the Vatican II church, apparently, the Son of God shares a space with the devil. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Clovis continues, quote, The latter, meaning the anti-church, the latter, having grown stronger, is now attempting to pass itself off as the true church, all the better to induct or coerce the faithful into becoming adherents, promoters and defenders of a secular ideology, should the anti-church succeed in commandeering all the space of the true church, the rights of man will supplant the rights of God through the desecration of the sacraments, the sacrilege of the sanctuary, and the abuse of apostolic power, unquote. Yeah, like that hasn't happened in the Vatican II church. I mean, that church preaches religious liberty over the rights of the true religion. It has completely desecrated the sacraments and rendered a good number of them invalid. 
Um, there is sacrilege galore in the sanctuary, okay, where, where there still is a sanctuary, that is. Um, in many cases, has been replaced entirely and turned into a worship space. So I don't know what Clovis thinks he's doing here, but if people like him are supposed to be the defenders of orthodoxy that are going to hold the line against the anti-church, then heaven help us. All right, do we have time for one more or should we take a break? Hey, let's do one more with uh, a little audio here for the fun of it, okay? The following soundbite is from Father Joseph Pfeiffer, formerly with the Society of St. Pius X, and uh, for the last few years he's been on his own uh, with a few other associates who left or were expelled from the SSPX because they opposed the liberalizing influences there. In the second half of June, Father Pfeiffer gave what he called a doctrinal conference, and I want to respond to something that he says there that uh, someone pointed me to because I want to show how absurd the argumentation has become. Here is Father Pfeiffer. Pope Adrian VI stated that it is beyond question that a pope can err in matters touching the faith he can teach heresy and decrees, and many Roman pontiffs are heretics. If by the Roman church you mean its head or pontiff, it is beyond question that he can err, even in matters touching the faith. He does this when he teaches heresy by his own judgment or decretal. In truth, many pontiffs are heretics. The last of them was Pope John XXII. So Father Pfeiffer tells you that Pope Adrian VI said that the Pope can err in matters of faith, can teach heresy, and that many Roman pontiffs were heretics. Now, let me show you all the things that are wrong with this. Number one, the individual in question was not Pope when he said this. That was before he became Pope. So it's misleading to say that Pope Adrian VI said these things because as Pope, he did not. He said them as a theologian long before he became Pope. Number two, Certain ideas regarding the papacy were still permitted to be held back then. We're talking the 16th century. But they're no longer permitted today because the church has since condemned them as errors or otherwise forbidden them to be held. Number three, how does Father Pfeiffer think he can square what he just said with a dogmatic constitution pastor eternus? of the First Vatican Council and other magisterial teachings on the papacy as the perpetual guarantee of orthodoxy that can never fail. You can't go by a theologian from the 1500s if what he said was subsequently contradicted by the church's magisterium. Come on. Number four, the question of papal heresy came up at the First Vatican Council as the Council Fathers were debating papal infallibility. Let me quote you the report on this of Archbishop John Purcell of Cincinnati, who, before the dogmatic definition, was opposed to papal infallibility and therefore can hardly be accused of being biased in our favor here. Here is what Archbishop Purcell wrote. Quote, the question was also raised by a cardinal, what is to be done with the Pope if he becomes a heretic? It was answered that there has never been such a case. The Council of Bishops could depose him for heresy, for from the moment he becomes a heretic, 
He is not the head or even a member of the church. The church would not be for a moment obliged to listen to him when he begins to teach a doctrine the church knows to be a false doctrine, and he would cease to be Pope being deposed by God himself, unquote. Now, you can look all of that up uh, by clicking on the links uh, that we've provided in the show notes, okay? It's all there, totally documented, what I just quoted, and also the things about Pastor Eternos and Adrian VI. Number five, even if we assume as true, for the sake of argument, the false claim that Father Pfeiffer made that uh, a Pope Adrian VI said that a Pope can err and teach heresy and that many pontiffs were heretics, has it not occurred to Father Pfeiffer that by the same token then maybe it was Adrian VI who was teaching heresy in that very instance? How do we know that that teaching isn't heretical? If the Pope can teach heresy. So you see that Pfeiffer here is giving you complete theological junk. And yet people continually look up to these recognize and resist clergy as the reliable guardians of Catholic tradition and orthodoxy. They are not. Now, just for fairness sake, I have to point out that I, I didn't listen to anything else from that so-called doctrinal conference of Father Pfeiffer, but um, that right there is a deal-breaker. Oh, and by the way, the only book that I'm aware of that uh, still repeated the quote from the theologian Adrian, who later became Pope Adrian, about many Roman pontiffs having, having been heretics, the only book to repeat that after the First Vatican Council in 1870 was a book by Paul Violet called The Infallibility of the Pope and the Syllabus. And that work was placed on the Index of Forbidden Books under Pope St. Pius X. Just saying. Okay. All right. I'd say it's time for a break now. Lots coming up still. We're going to expose some heresy, and the remnant will unspin Christopher Ferrara, and we'll also have a new episode of From the Jorge's Mouth. Don't go away. Tradcast. Hope you are enjoying the sample of the motet Felix Nanquies from the album Sacred Choral Music by Nicholas Wilton, sung by the acclaimed English choir Magnificat. If you appreciate such sacred choral music, please support the traditional Catholic composer Nicholas Wilton by buying a copy of his CD or purchasing downloads of individual tracks from fourmarksmusic.com. That is F-O-U-R-M-A-R-K-S-M-U-S-I-C.com or his website catholicmusic.co.uk. There is more information and also a new CD of his piano music available on those websites. Thank <laughs> you. 
If you're looking for EWTN, this ain't it. Tradcast. Returning from our little break, we will now continue with our second segment of this Tratcast number 22. Tratcast is produced by Novus Ordo Watch, your Catholic beacon of sanity in a world gone mad. You know, as I was starting to prepare for this podcast episode, I came across a headline that made me literally burst into laughter. It's from Christopher Ferrara's column, Fatima Perspectives, on Fatima.org, installment number 1211. The headline is, Francis' Scarlet Letter, a little f from Francis, gives the schismatic German bishops everything they want. Now, what I find so funny about this is that Ferrara uses the label schismatic to refer to the German Novus Ordo bishops. It makes you wonder, does the man have the faintest idea what schism even means? Let me give you the full story here. This is important because it shows how badly Ferrara twists reality in order to continue to promote the false but convenient recognize and resist position. See, if Ferrara were just some lone blogger out there with no real audience, then this would be no big deal. But of course, he's a well-respected and influential author, columnist, and commentator to whom a lot of people look up, especially people who get their information about what supposedly constitutes traditional Catholicism from the Fatima Center and the Remnant. First, the background. Please bear with me here because this is going to take some time, but um, I trust you'll find it quite informative. Back in February, the Novus Ordo bishops of Germany had decided in their plenary assembly that they were going to produce a guide about the permissibility of Protestant spouses in mixed marriages to receive the Novus Ordo version of Holy Communion. Edward Penton from the National Catholic Register reported this as follows on February 22nd, quote, German bishops have voted overwhelmingly in favor of producing a guide for Protestant spouses on reception of Holy Communion under certain conditions. At their spring conference in Ingolstadt, the German bishops' conference agreed that a Protestant partner of a Catholic can receive the Eucharist after having made a serious examination of conscience with a priest or another person with pastoral responsibilities, affirms the faith of the Catholic Church, wishes to end serious spiritual distress, and has a longing to satisfy a hunger for the Eucharist, unquote. 
a few individual dissenting voices among the German Novus Ordo Episcopate then appealed to Rome, asking them to step in and prevent this guide from becoming reality. In response, Francis ordered the different parties to come to Rome to tell them essentially that he wasn't going to get involved and that they'd better figure this out on their own. That was in early May. Then, on May 25th, the prefect of the Vatican's doctrinal office sent a letter to Cardinal Marx, the uh, head of the German bishops, telling him that Francis had told him that the guide on allowing communion for Protestants was, quote, not ready for publication. And this was hailed by some as a a great victory that the Vatican had shot down the intercommunion proposal. But the fact is that the objections from the Vatican were not objections of theological principle, but of pastoral prudence, including what this would do to ecumenical relations with churches outside of Germany and so forth. You still with me so far? Good, because it gets better. Francis was asked about this during his in-flight press conference returning from Geneva on June 21st. And there he said that he supported Ladaria's letter, Ladaria being the head of the uh, doctrinal office in Rome. Francis said that he supported Ladaria's letter and noted that the problem with the proposed German intercommunion guide was that it conflicted with the 1983 Code of Canon Law, which says that the decision on whether a Protestant gets to receive communion is made by each local bishop for his own diocese. In other words, Francis is totally cool with it if individual bishops want to make that call for their diocese, he just doesn't want it to be a universal norm for all of Germany. The Novus Ordo News website Crux reported on Francis' words as follows, quote, Francis said the problem with having an entire bishops' conference deal with such questions is that something worked out in an Episcopal conference quickly becomes universal. At the same time, Francis praised the bishops' efforts, saying their document was well thought out with a Christian spirit. Whatever the German conference may come up with in the end, the Pope said, likely will be an orientational document so that every one of the diocesan bishops can determine by himself what the Code of Canon Law already permits. Unquote. And then guess what happened? On June 27th, the German bishops released the very document that Francis had forbidden them from releasing, but they did so with a clever trick. They published it as an independent document and not as an official document of the German Bishops' Conference. Basically, they just published the text without associating it with the National Conference of German Bishops. There is no author and no association mentioned. And so they released this, and it is now no longer called a pastoral handout, but is simply now an orientation aid. It's clever. But of course, not without Francis' blessing. You see, Cardinal Marx is also part of Francis' advisory council in the Vatican, and so he has more access to the Unholy Father than most other people do. And Marx has now produced a document in which he summarizes a conversation he had with Francis on June 11th, and that includes the following points. 
Number one, the May 25th letter from Prefect Ladaria is to be understood only as containing recommendations and not instructions as to how the bishops' conference must act. Number two, Francis doesn't want the pastoral handout on intercommunion to be published as a text of the bishops' conference because this is a matter for the universal church. But the text of the handout can and is supposed to be an orientation and study aid for the local bishops. And thirdly, since the text of the handout is supposed to be an aid to the individual diocesan bishops, it can therefore naturally be published. So these things Marks resolved with Francis, and Francis has indicated his approval of this summary of the conversation by initialing the paper that Marks had written up with a capital F for Francis, and then dating it June 12, 2018. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the background to Ferrara's piece in his Fatima Perspectives column. So let's look at one crucial paragraph there. Ferrara complains, quote, Here's how Pope Francis' signature, now being touted as a papal authority by Cardinal Marx, appears on the note, F12618. That is, Francis wished to greenlight the sacrilege diocese by diocese, but did not wish to sign his entire name to the document unleashing it, evidently because of an instinctive refusal to commit fully the authority of the papacy to this incredible act of ecclesial destruction. In accordance with his general modus operandi, Francis prefers the wink and the nod to an explicit papal endorsement of heresy and sacrilege. A little f will do to signify his agreement to let each bishop do what he cannot authorize as pope but wishes to give the impression he has authorized, unquote. Now, this is typical Ferrara. Instead of giving you a cool analysis of the facts and then drawing a reasonable conclusion from them, he gives you spin, meaning he gives you a heavily slanted interpretation of the facts that is designed to support the preconceived conclusion he wants to persuade you of. First, if you look at the actual document that Francis put his initial on, and we've uh, got that linked for you in the show notes for this episode so you can see it for yourself, if you look at that document, then you see that Francis simply initialed and dated it somewhere in the margin. And typically, that would simply mean that he read the text and agrees with it. That makes sense because it was a brief note put together by Cardinal Marx recapping the conversation he'd had with Francis. So it would make sense that Francis, to signal his approval, would initial and date it. Ferrara, though, makes it seem like Francis should have signed the document with his full name and decided not to because he didn't want to use the fullness of his supposed papal authority to authorize the sacrilege. That makes no sense whatsoever, and the only reason why Ferrara is arguing it is because it bolsters his thesis of the great facade, which is that all the evil changes since Vatican II have all been only seemingly imposed, but not actually. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to defend Francis or Cardinal Marx here. I'm simply trying to show how Christopher Ferrara misleads his readers. He's a lawyer by profession, and he thinks like a lawyer, meaning he's got a case to argue, and so whatever he finds that he can spin in support of his position, that's what he's going to use. 
Had Francis signed his name instead of just initialing, this would not have made a hill of beans worth of a difference, because all the initial or the signature means is that Francis agrees that the recap of the conversation Marx provided is accurate. That's it. So when Ferrara says that Francis' initialing rather than signing shows an instinctive refusal to commit fully the authority of the papacy to this incredible act of ecclesial destruction, it's pure baloney. Any way you look at it, Francis is obviously authorizing each German bishop to make his own determination about which Protestant to allow to receive Novus Ordo Communion. Whether he does that with a signature or an initial or a backslap is really irrelevant. This isn't about a signature. This is about what Francis told Marx and is authorizing him to do. Ferrara continues, quote, Father Gruner never ceased to denounce the fakery by which the entire church has been subverted since Vatican II. The false appearance of a command where none has actually been given, and none can be given because no command destructive of the faith can be anything but void ab initio, meaning from the outset, no matter what a piece of paper may say. So it was with the non-existent banning of the Latin Mass, a fraud exposed by Benedict XVI in Samorum Pontificum. So it was with the papal rescript that Francis authorized Secretary of State Pietro Parolin to issue, stating that the intrinsically impossible permission to administer Holy Communion to public adulterers is authentic magisterium, unquote. And there you have Ferrara's entire idea of how the infallibility and indefectibility of the Church works. The Pope and the Church can impose anything they please, and when it's bad or wrong or heretical or harmful, then it doesn't count. That is not only false theologically, it's also ridiculous. I mean, what Protestant couldn't say the same thing about his church? What value is there in saying that the church cannot give evil if all we mean by it is that when she does, then it doesn't count? I mean, that's just stupid, okay? Um, what kind of church is it where the Pope, the Vicar of Christ, teaches and governs his church, but then some lawyer from Virginia comes along and says, no, 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 this isn't right, this isn't traditional, that's not what we did before, this is contrary to the gospel, and so we have the right and the duty to resist it, yada, yada, yada. What is this? Well, whatever it is, it's certainly not Catholic ecclesiology. Here. Listen to these beautiful words from a real pope. Quote, the discipline sanctioned by the church must never be rejected or be branded as contrary to certain principles of natural law. It must never be called crippled or imperfect or subject to civil authority. In this discipline, the administration of sacred rights, standards of morality, and the reckoning of the rights of the church and her ministers are embraced. Unquote. And that was uh, Pope Gregory XVI in his encyclical Mirari Vos, number 9. Then also Pope Pius XII, quote, Certainly the loving mother, the church, is spotless in the sacraments by which she gives birth to and nourishes her children, in the faith which she has always preserved inviolate, in her sacred laws imposed on all. 
in the evangelical councils which she recommends, in those heavenly gifts and extraordinary graces through which, with inexhaustible fecundity, she generates hosts of martyrs, virgins, and confessors. Unquote. And that's from the encyclical Mystici Corporis number 66. So, listen closely, Mr. Ferrara. When the Church teaches that she is spotless and infallible in her universal disciplinary laws, in her liturgical rites, in the canonization of saints, and so on, then that is precisely what it means. It means that a true Pope cannot promulgate evil. Not that he can, but since he's not supposed to, you can simply ignore it. No, it actually cannot happen. And because it cannot happen, therefore it will never happen. No pope will ever do such a thing. God himself guarantees it. Well, excuse me, but I'm tired of this, okay? These are the people who hold themselves up as the great defenders of traditional Catholicism, and when you look closely, they do not uphold the traditional Catholic doctrine in its traditional understanding. And of course they cannot because they insist that the Vatican II popes are legitimate. And that's what kills it all. That's what throws a monkey wrench into it all again and again. So you see, these things matter. Whether Francis is pope or not matters. Well, it matters to a Catholic anyway. And it's simply not true to maintain, as Ferrara does, that a lot of these evil laws from the Vatican II sect were not genuinely imposed. That is all just this great facade. That's always been his claim, but it's simply not true. Let's take the banning of the traditional Latin Mass, for example. Ferrara says that it was never really banned, and they all just conspired to make it look like it was. Nonsense. On October 28, 1974, the Modernist Vatican's Congregation for Divine Worship issued a notification making this very clear. Let me quote from it. Quote, when a conference of bishops decrees that the translation of the Roman Missal, or any part of it, for example the Order of Mass, is obligatory in a region... Mass, whether in Latin or the vernacular, may be celebrated lawfully only according to the rite of the Roman Missal promulgated on the 3rd of April, 1969, by authority of Pope Paul VI, unquote. Now, Ferrara, of course, points to Benedict XVI because in 2007, he wrote a letter to the world's Novus Ordo bishops accompanying his apostolic letter, Summorum Pontificum, on the use of the traditional Latin Mass according to the Missal of 1962, and here's what he said, quote, I would like to draw attention to the fact that this missal was never juridically abrogated and consequently, in principle, was always permitted, unquote. And so Ferrara seizes that and says, see, I was right. The old Latin mass was never actually forbidden and Benedict exposed the fraud. Yeah, well, not quite. If there's fraud here, it was perpetrated by Benedict. That the old Latin mass was forbidden can be proved from the simple fact that you needed an indult to be allowed to offer it. An indult is a concession, a special permission for something that is forbidden by the common law. 
The first indult was given by John Paul II in 1984. In the document Quatuor Apig Anos, the Congregation for Divine Worship stated, quote, The Supreme Pontiff grants to diocesan bishops the possibility of using an indult whereby priests and faithful may be able to celebrate Mass by using the Roman Missal according to the 1962 edition. Unquote. And then uh, some conditions uh, are enumerated in that document. So when Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, says in 2007 that the 1962 missile was never forbidden, he's simply verifiably lying. And uh, Ferrara is actually using a double standard here. You see, if Benedict XVI had not said that and had claimed instead that the old mass had indeed been forbidden, you know what Ferrara would have said? He would have said that what Benedict says there has no authority because, well, for one thing, it's false. And uh, besides, it's not part of his magisterium anyway because it's not part of the text of Samorum Pontificum at all, but is just contained in an accompanying letter that is utterly non-binding. So at best, Benedict was merely expressing an opinion and that opinion happens to be wrong. Hey, maybe Ferrara would have even said that Benedict not including it as part of Samorum Pontificum was, on his part, an instinctive refusal to commit fully the authority of the papacy concerning this error. Well, who knows? But that's how it works for Chris Ferrara. That's the theology of the remnant and the Fatima Center and, and, and the Semitrads. Whatever the Holy See may publish or mandate, it's always subject to review and cancellation by the self-appointed board of sifters and resistors. Well, who needs modernism when you have traditional Catholics like that? But hey, not to worry. The schismatics, according to Ferrara, are the German Novus Ordo bishops. Yeah, remember, the title of his post is Francis Scarlet Letter. A little f from Francis gives the schismatic German bishops everything they want. But what is schism? If we suppose that Francis is a true pope, which is what Ferrara believes, then schism is exactly what Ferrara is doing. Refusal of submission to the Roman pontiff, that is schism. The official definition for schism is refusal of submission to the Roman pontiff or of communion with members of the church who are subject to the Roman pontiff. So then, please tell us, Mr. Ferrara, how are the German bishops in schism? If Francis is pope, then for them to be in schism would mean they're refusing submission to Francis. So, what does Ferrara want here? Does he want them to submit to Francis? Really? Well, I don't think so. So this makes no sense whatsoever, and it shows that Ferrara is really just a very skilled rhetorician. And by the way, the latest on this whole topic of communion for Protestants in the Novus Ordo Church, at least as of July 4th, is that the pretend bishop of uh, Paderborn, uh, Archlayman Hans-Josef Becker, has announced that in his diocese, Protestants will now be allowed to receive the invalid Novus Ordo cookie only, of course, in individual cases. Wink, wink. You know, I find it absolutely amazing 
what a gigantic fuss is being made about this communion for Protestants thing, because aside from all the theology and all the theoretical considerations, the simple fact is that in the Vatican II sect, especially in Germany, virtually anyone who walks up to receive communion will actually receive it. You can count on one hand the number of cases where someone has actually refused Novus Ordo Communion. Talk about individual cases. <laughs> so just like with Amor's Letizia and the question of communion for public adulterers, this is a complete non-issue in the practical order. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the Jorge's mouth. From the Jorge's mouth. Rarely does a day pass when this man, Jorge Bergoglio, doesn't have something blasphemous, something heretical, erroneous, or just downright stupid to say. So let's, uh, let's look at a few recent things. On June 13th, His Wickedness released a message for the World Day of the Poor, which is observed in October every year. And in this message, he makes this blasphemous assertion, quote, Far from the disciples of Christ nourishing sentiments of contempt or pietism towards the poor, they are called to honor them, giving them precedence out of the conviction that they are a real presence of Jesus in our midst, unquote. Here we see a typical modernist tactic. The literal and physical real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist is marginalized and reduced to being simply one way among many of Christ's presence in the world, really not significantly different from Christ's symbolic and entirely subjective presence in the poor and the downtrodden and the unemployed and those who have to wait in line at the immigration office, and on and on it goes, until they figure out that everyone, at some point, is disadvantaged or inconvenienced in some way, and then everyone becomes Christ. And that's really what the false Vatican II gospel is anyway. Man is God, man is Christ, and therefore God. There's more in that message for the World Day of the Poor. Listen to this, quote, I invite my brother bishops, priests, and in particular deacons on whom hands have been laid for the service of the poor as well as religious and the lay faithful men and women who in parishes, associations, and ecclesial movements make tangible the church's response to the cry of the poor to live this world day as a special moment of new evangelization. The poor evangelize us, helping us to discover every day the beauty of the gospel. Let us not waste this opportunity for grace. Let all of us feel on this day that we are debtors towards the poor because stretching out our hands reciprocally one to another, 
a salvific encounter be created which strengthens our faith, renders our charity active, and enables our hope to continue secure on the journey towards the Lord who is returning, unquote. And there you have it again, an inversion of the supernatural order, giving precedence to the natural. Christ instituted the church to evangelize the poor, not the other way around. Remember, here's a quote from St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. And Jesus, making answer, said to them, Go and relate to John what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead rise again, the poor have the gospel preached to them. But in France's religion, it is the poor who preach the gospel to the church, because it's all about works of charity. It's all about the corporal works of mercy. It's all about man, about the body, about the temporal world. Man is France's object of worship. Under the guise of an authentic faithfulness to the gospel, to mercy and compassion, Francis is trying to gradually turn Catholicism from a religion focused on the supernatural into an NGO focused on alleviating temporal needs. And that's all that evangelization is ultimately about for Francis. And if you keep in mind now that the Antichrist, when he comes, will be a great humanitarian, you can see that what we see in our day is definitely a preparation for the Antichrist. And that's why Francis could very well be the false prophet. According to sacred tradition, the false prophet will herald the arrival of the Antichrist in a way similar to how St. John the Baptist heralded the arrival of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. So, in order for the masses to accept the Antichrist, the roads must first be leveled for his teaching to become acceptable and accept it. And one way to do that, especially the way to get Catholics to do that, is to put in a false pope who is believed by most to be a true pope, but actually isn't, and one who will lead the flock down into the abyss. And yes, God will allow that. It's part of the mystery of iniquity that God has foretold he will permit to deceive the world in punishment for its sins and unbelief. The operation of error, it's called in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And Christ himself said, quote, For there will rise up false Christs and false prophets, and they shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect, unquote. And that's Mark 13, 22. Also, listen to what Father Sylvester Berry wrote in his explanation of the Apocalypse of St. John, otherwise known as the Book of Revelation, back in 1921. Yes, 1921, so he can't be accused of Sedevacanus bias, okay? Um, here's what he wrote commenting on chapter 13 of the Apocalypse. Listen carefully because this has the potential to give you goosebumps. Listen to this. Quote, The beast arising from the earth is a false prophet, the prophet of Antichrist. Our divine Savior has a representative on earth in the person of the Pope, upon whom he has conferred full powers to teach and govern. Likewise, Antichrist, 
will have his representative in the false prophet who will be endowed with the plenitude of satanic powers to deceive the nations. As indicated by the resemblance to a lamb, the prophet will probably set himself up in Rome as a sort of anti-pope during the vacancy of the papal throne mentioned above, but the elect will not allow themselves to be deceived. They will recall the words of our Lord, then if any man shall say to you, lo, here is Christ, or there, do not believe him, unquote. Ladies and gentlemen, Father Barry in 1921. We're living it, folks. We're living it. All right, here another gem from the Jorge's mouth. While he was in Geneva at the Ecumenical World Council of Churches on June 21st, Francis encouraged his ecumenical audience to work together to collaborate in carrying out works of charity wherever possible. Here's what he said, quote, The Lord, the Good Samaritan of mankind, will examine us on our love for our neighbor, for each of our neighbor. So let us ask ourselves, what can we do together? If a particular form of service is possible, why not plan and carry it out together and thus start to experience a more intense fraternity in the exercise of concrete charity? Unquote. Now, although this might sound fair enough at first, once you really think about it, with the way things are today in ecumenism, it uh, quickly becomes absurd. I mean, why should anyone think that a Catholic working in a soup kitchen side by side with some lesbian pro-abort Methodist bishopess is something desired by Christ? Why should anyone think that? <laughs> and I guess if some Islamist then comes along and kills that bishopess, mistaking her for a Christian, then what, I, I guess she goes to heaven then and is part of the true church somehow because ecumenism of blood? <laughs> this is nauseating. But that's where they're at today. Welcome to the fruits of ecumenism. It took them over 50 years to get to this point. All right, one more item from the Jorge's mouth, and then we'll move on. On June 6th, Francis had a chat with seminarians, and uh, it's always best when he speaks off the cuff, because that's when you get uh, what he really thinks. That's when you get the real him, the unfiltered truth about what's really in his mind. Let me quote uh, from the report provided by Crux, and uh, I think there won't be need for a lot of commentary. Quote, According to the Pope, we fear the Holy Spirit and try to cage him within gestures and doctrine. An easy way to spot if the Holy Spirit is active within someone, Francis added, is by seeing whether he has a sense of humor. For me, a sense of humor is the human behavior that is closest to grace, he said. It's that good relativism, the relativism of joy, the relativism of spirituality, that relativism which is born from the Holy Spirit. Beyond the spiritual formation that Francis mentioned, it's important to cater to the human formation of priests as well. Spontaneity, and not rigidity, is key for a priest to be able to be with his brothers and flock, the Pope said, though he warns about the dangers this might entail without discernment. If you don't know how to caress well, as fathers and as brothers, it's possible that the devil might lead you to pay for 
caressing, Francis warned. Be careful. Unquote. <laughs> There's your mystic Francis again. I mean, what do you say to that? Uh, now, let's, let's just leave it at that. Thus far, our examination of uh, some of the words that have recently impiously proceeded from the Bergolian lips. But hey, not all the wickedness emanating from the Vatican these days comes directly from Francis. Sometimes it comes from some member of his curia. So, for example, on April 20th of this year, Cardinal Jean-Louis Torren proclaimed that Mohammedans, otherwise known as Muslims, the members of Islam, have a right and a duty to proclaim their belief in Allah and to share their religion with others. Well, that's what I call doctrinal development. Uh, back in 1965, Vatican II said they have a right to exercise their religion in private and in public, and now the post-conciliar church has moved on to declaring it even a duty, not just to exercise that false religion, but even to preach it to others. In the annual Vatican message to Muslims on the occasion of Ramadan, the president of the so-called Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue wrote, quote, Dear Muslim brothers and sisters, in his providence, God the Almighty has granted you the opportunity to observe anew the fasting of Ramadan and to celebrate Eid al-Fitr. And right there, that's blasphemy. Uh, then yada, 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 and then... We all have the right and the duty to witness to the all-powerful one we worship and to share our beliefs with others while respecting their religion and religious sentiments, unquote. So, yeah, there you have it. Now Muslims don't only have the right to practice their religion, they even have the duty to do so and to share it with others. But heaven forbid we Catholics should preach the true religion. Then it's, oh, get off your high horse, you proselytizing triumphalist. you got to get rid of those rigid certainties, you insecure creed-reciting Pharisee. Yeah, no, all we get to do is wash migrants' feet and scrub the floors of the local soup kitchen, uh, you know, because then we're witnessing. Uh, but the Muslims, of course, no, they get to share their religion with others. Honestly, if what we're witnessing here isn't the great apostasy, then I don't know what else the great apostasy would be. It's a colossal loss of faith at its very roots, and it's almost universal. There's nothing left of the old faith in the external Catholic structures. And uh, this reminds me of what St. John the Apostle wrote in his first epistle, chapter 2, verses 22 to 23. Who is a liar but he who denieth that Jesus is the Christ? This is Antichrist, who denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. He that confesses the Son hath the Father also. And speaking of denying Christ, uh, when someone denies dogma, he denies the truth revealed by Jesus Christ, and we had a case of that recently at the Remnant, remnantnewspaper.com. One of their contributors, Elizabeth Yore, wrote an article on Francis' protection and promotion of Bishop 
Juan Barros in Chile, whom he has since removed. Barros had long been accused of covering up sexual abuse perpetrated by Father Fernando Caradimo. Abuse he's been convicted of, by the way, okay? So these, these are not just allegations. Anyway, Elizabeth Yor concludes her article at the, the Remnant with these words, quote, The College of Cardinals should immediately convene and remove Francis, the Bishop of Rome, for his gross and grave negligence and personal complicity in the systematic flouting and abuse of his own zero-tolerance policy, causing a scandal of epic proportions brought upon the global Catholic Church and the Chilean Catholic Church, unquote. So here Yor is saying or implying that a validly reigning pope, because that's what she believes Francis to be, that a validly reigning pope can be removed from office by his underlings. That is heresy. The First Vatican Council declared in Chapter 3 of its dogmatic constitution, Pastor Eternus, quote, The judgment of the apostolic see, whose authority is not surpassed, is to be disclaimed by no one, nor is anyone permitted to pass judgment on its judgment. Therefore, they stray from the straight path of truth who affirm that it is permitted to appeal from the judgments of the Roman pontiffs to an ecumenical council as to an authority higher than the Roman pontiff, unquote. Now, in the show notes, we'll link our entire article on the impossibility of judging or deposing a true pope so you can see all this for yourself. You can see uh, all the argumentation, all the evidence uh, for that. A true pope cannot be brought to trial by anyone, nor can he be removed. That's divine law. It's traditional Catholicism, the Catholicism that the remnant supposedly stands for. Uh, the blogger Louis Verecchio, who believes Francis uh, isn't Pope, but Benedict XVI is, he also noticed this heresy at the remnant and wrote a post about it, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Well, you know, this is serious stuff. Denial of dogma is heresy. Now, I remember uh, someone commenting about this on Facebook uh, when we put out a, a, a post about the, this heresy at the remnant. Somebody commented and said that, really, we need to be more charitable here, and we should assume that uh, the author, Elizabeth Yore, only made a mistake and didn't mean to write something heretical. And that may very well be true, but what really annoys me about uh, that kind of a comment is that it's totally beside the point. The idea is not here to render a judgment on the subjective guilt or innocence of Elizabeth Yore, which obviously only God can do anyway. The idea is to point out that what has been said is heretical and therefore gravely damaging to souls because it misleads them. It contradicts God's very revelation. And for that damage to be done, it doesn't matter if the author meant to speak heresy or not. And so I find this frustrating. Why is it that people always focus on subjective guilt or innocence of an individual and not about the objective facts and the damage done? And uh, aside from that, there's a few other things that need to be noted here. 
Number one, if Elizabeth Yor does not even know that a pope cannot be removed from office for being morally bad, then what is she doing writing for a supposedly traditional Catholic publication? Secondly, how in the world did this slip past the watchful eye of the editor? Where is Michael Matt? Okay, why didn't he censor this? Why didn't he tell the author that she made a mistake there and that this needs to be taken out or corrected? And thirdly, why, now that it's out in the open, is the error still not corrected? This heresy is still up on the Remnant's website. And it's been weeks, I believe. So even if you want to allow for making mistakes and not catching something, which can happen... Why in the world is the heretical statement still there? Everyone can draw his own conclusions here. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are fast approaching the end of this podcast, but I've got one more thing for you. I really don't know whether to laugh or cry about this. On May 8th of this year, blogger Stephen O'Reilly of the Roma Locuta Est blog wrote, quote, If Pope Francis were not a true pope things would have been far worse than they have been, unquote. Well, I guess they are just so blessed in the Novus Ordo Church to have Francis keeping the gates of hell from prevailing. Imagine the horror and the chaos, the heresy and the sacrilege, the blasphemy and the impiety that would ensue if Jorge Bergoglio weren't there to keep it all from going to hell. Some people just can't be helped. Hey, everyone, thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure, as always, to have your company. Please don't forget to support Nobles Order Watch and um, tune in again next time. God bless. Radcast.